attended here. So good friends of ours, a lot of connections. So Daniel asked me to speak this morning on this topic called critical race theory or CRT, also known as critical social justice or the modern social justice movement or wokeness, got a lot of different names. And uh, maybe you've heard of it. Most people have by this point. For many, they heard of this movement during the summer of 2020 for the first time when a video of a black man dying in a police incident with a white police officer suddenly went viral online. And within the next few months, peaceful marches and also violent riots overtook major American cities, causing billions in damage of looted and burned neighborhoods, hundreds of injuries and several deaths. Suddenly, everyone's social media feeds were filled with terms like systemic racism, white privilege, whiteness, white fragility, phrases like listen to people of color, intersectionality, social justice, and wokeness, being asked if they've awakened to the injustice in the society around them. Claims were made like all white people are racist and demands were made to pay reparations from white people to black people to, uh, for white people to give up their leadership positions to people of color and to defund the police as a racist institution. Universities began to resegregate, making spaces where white people weren't allowed and schools began to implement uh, critical race theory education <clears throat> for kids as young as kindergarten. White people who dared to disagree with this new movement were uh, quickly fired. Black or brown people who dared to disagree were told that they were not an authentic voice of color, that they had internalized racism, tone privilege, or called a race traitor. Statues were torn down. Videos surfaced of white Christians literally bowing before black Americans being led in corporate confession of racial sin. Churches without any black or brown leaders were shamed. Christians were told to prove you care about racism by putting a black square in your, uh, in, your, uh, in your profile on social media. Pastors who hadn't held church in months during COVID-19 were suddenly inviting their congregants to march with the Black Lives Matter movement. Corporations scrambled to emblazon Black Lives Matter on their advertising, paying millions to nonprofits purporting to fight racism and hiring trained diversity, equity, inclusion officers to educate them on microaggressions and racial trauma. One such educator was caught in a viral video standing in front of a white audience who calmly listened while she proclaimed that white people are born into not being human. That's what y'all are taught to do, to be demons. She said this while standing in front of an easel that read in capital letters, all white people are racist, PayPal me. Now, most of what I'm telling you is likely not new. You probably experienced this strange time of cultural upheaval like a lot of us did. To state the obvious, this movement is still ongoing. In fact, it has pretty much captured academia, that is, all universities and colleges, the news media, Hollywood, the political sphere, the corporate world, entire denominations, the upper echelons of the military, public and public education, although we have seen some uh, grasp. Uh, grassroots uh, opposition in some schools. Over the last two years, we've seen the movement uh, start to reveal its true concerns, uh, revealing that they're much broader than simply racial issues, but that it's united with the LGBTQIA plus movement and trying to make sinful sexual perversion seem normal, and that uh, socialism is also one of its key goals. Now, when we're faced with such an onslaught of cultural pressure, uh, many of us 
like, like me, many of us have probably felt, you know what, I'm just going to bury my head in the sand and I'm just going to ignore it. And I get that. I really do. The problem is that if we simply want to call all of this politics and say, I don't want to have anything to do with politics, the problem is eventually this kind of politics is going to want to have something to do with you or your children or your grandchildren. The truth is that many of us here living in Appalachia are likely not going to run into this on a daily basis. If I turned off my phone, I probably wouldn't hear much about this in my line of work. But I can tell you, for example, that this has already infected the Southern Baptist Convention, including the seminary that Daniel and I attend. Uh, the corporations you do business with, like Disney, for instance, their, their products are, that you use are going to be affected by this. And I can't tell you how many times I've been contacted by friends from fields ranging uh, from real estate to social work to p- even police departments saying that they're facing these woke trainings in the workplace and that employees are prioritized for hiring and for, um, for raises based on skin color. Or they're finding out that their kids without parental consent were taught racist ideology or transgenderism at their school, even in rural areas. But frankly, I'm not here to talk, uh, to try to get you involved in anti-woke activism. That's, that's not my main goal here. My, uh, the reason Daniel invited me to speak primarily is to address how can the average church member be prepared to meet this worldview and to answer its claims. I've done a lot of thought on why it is that the evangelical church in the West was so vulnerable to this false teaching, why it seemed like so many fell so hard so fast. See, there were questions. Here's, my, here's what I think. I, I think there were a lot of questions that church members were asking that pastors weren't answering. There were a lot of questions that church members were asking, and pastors either didn't know that they were being asked or weren't providing those answers. And so the questions about race, questions about historical guilt, questions about justice. Shepherds weren't answering those questions, but there were wolves out there, false teachers, who were more than willing to do so, uh, providing unbiblical answers, and the sheep went astray. As pastors, it's our job, uh, as 2 Timothy 4, 2-4 says, if you would turn with me there, let's read that quickly to give the context of this uh, ministry of discernment we need to be a part of. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2-4. to four. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Be ready, in season and out of season. As in when it's popular and when it's not. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, if that doesn't describe the kind of time we are in, I don't know what does. I can't tell you uh, how many uh, friends I've seen uh, go down this road. So there are several ways to approach this topic, how to teach it this morning. And one way would be give you, to give you a historical overview, how it comes from Marxism and goes through all kinds of other historical schools of thought. Another way would be to approach it conceptually and tell you the central tenets, its goals, and its arguments, how, to, uh, how it overlaps in its thinking with postmodernism and the wider field of critical theory. And that's really what I'm going to be focusing on is critical theory as a whole rather than just critical race theory. And all that could be helpful, but I suspect that, number one, you'd forget it all very quickly. Number two, 
you would leave here still fairly unequipped to address it when you meet it face to face. And number three, uh, this wouldn't be a very scripturally based sermon. It'd be more just information. And four, frankly, it'd be boring. It just would not be uh, that interesting uh, to hear someone describe all that. So what I want to do this morning instead is to give you six doctrines, that is, teachings of the Bible, that are most frequently and blatantly contradicted by this family of ideologies. There's a lot more we could cover, but six is what we're going to have to do this morning. See, the problem with debating a woke individual is that wokeness functions in many ways like a religion. It is a rival religion. And like most religions, there are the scholars or the theologians who are experts in what the worldview believes. They have the pure 200-proof academic theory up here, and then there's the priests and pastors who know less than the scholars but more than the lay people. And then there's the lay people or the congregants who often have the watered-down, less extreme version of critical theory. I, I, I just call it diet wokeness, now with less calling people demons. Uh, it's, uh, I don't want you to assume that the average person is going to have the craziest version of these ideas. The foot soldiers of this movement are, often aren't aware of just how radical the thought leaders of the movement are. You might have noticed how many of these social justice lay people who once they heard uh, crazy phrases like abolish police be attached to BLM, they suddenly started to uh, jump ship and go quiet on social media. It's because they didn't realize that this is a much bigger movement than they thought it was. So in the wild, when you run into this theory, uh, these lay people are those who you're most likely going to run into. Another reason for this approach is that CRT activists love to, these love to switch out terms and hide under new, innocent-sounding terms. Everyone knows critical race theory now. Well, that's bad. But in schools, for instance, they're now going in under a social-emotional learning and uh, different forms of history teaching. Uh, they're constantly switching out terminology like that. And so in the same ways that, as a believer, I hope that you've been trained to for your ears to kind of perk up when you hear someone trying to redefine marriage or when you're, you're, you've been trained to notice when it kind of sounds like someone's denying the doctrine of hell. Uh, I want you to, to in, have red flags go off in your mind when you realize certain biblical doctrines are being violated by this social justice teaching. To put it in other words, if the social justice movement was a mechanical machine, Instead of listing all the parts that were used to build it, instead of going through all the history of this invention, I want to train you to have a biblical radar that goes off in your head whenever you spot that machine in operation, doing what, what it was made to do. And before we begin going through each of these doctrines, let me just offer a caution here. And uh, this next paragraph I've borrowed largely from Owen Strand, who is an author I highly recommend on this. I caution you not to become reactionary to wokeness, to think this through carefully. I know that the incessant, constant obsession our culture has with race and racial issues right now can be tiresome. I get it. But do not respond to it by being tempted, number one, to, to actually engage in racism. You can see people online saying, fine, well, if you're going to call me racist, I'm just going to be one. That's not, a, that's not appropriate. That, that is sin. Number two, don't be tempted to despise topics that the Bible itself talks about, like ethnicity and oppression and justice. And number three, don't be tempted to call anyone who wants to even discuss these things a critical race theorist or woke when you don't know what they truly think. It's usually not going to help debate. 
It's not woke, for instance, to want different ethnic groups to get along more harmoniously. We should desire that. It's not woke to recognize the long, disgusting history of racist policies and practices in our country, which sadly is not unique to our country. It's not woke to be surprised to learn just how recent some of that was. It's not woke to be saddened by how churches in the past were often complicit in that racism instead of fighting it. It's not woke to believe either because of uh, your own experience of truly racist actions or because of sociological research today that racism still persists in our society in some ways. It's not woke to support and sympathize with someone who shares an experience of truly being mistreated because of their appearance or ethnicity. That happens. It is not woke to adopt children with a different skin color or ethnicity as my own parents did. It's not woke to marry someone with a different skin color. We shouldn't be against inter-ethnic marriage as many Christians once were, unfortunately, and some still are. It's not woke to want to learn about different cultures. It's not woke to know that Jesus was a Middle Eastern Jewish man and not a white American guy. It's not woke to want earthly justice for people who have truly been wronged. And it's not woke to strive to be respectful in what words you use to describe individuals from other ethnicities or cultures. And it's not woke to acknowledge that we as fallen human beings today are fully capable of racism. Every one of our hearts is capable of it. And, it's n- and it is not woke to rejoice when we see men and women from every ethnicity joining together to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So quickly, I'm going to go one by one through these six doctrines of Scripture that wokeness most frequently and most blatantly violates in its practice. And I understand that this is going to be fast. It's going to be a lot of content. It's going to be like drinking from a fire hydrant. So please, just the, the Scripture references, I don't expect you to look them all up. They're in that, uh, that uh, handout. And uh, please write down any questions you have for the question and answer time during Sunday school. So the first doctrine I want to cover is the image of God. Man is the image of God. What do I mean by that? I mean that God, as Genesis 1.27 says, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let me explain. When kings would rule a region, they would put statues of themselves up to let everyone in the land know just who was ruling over that region. When a subject spit on that statue or an invading force came in and broke it down, it was their way of saying, you know what, I can't get to the king, so I'll settle for this. I'm going to do this now. This is what I wish I could do to him, but I can't yet, so I'm going to settle for this. Human beings are the image of God on the earth. When we wrong them, We are in essence saying, I wish I could do this to God, but I can't get to him, so I'm going to settle for this. This is why James 3.9 will condemn those who curse people who are made in the likeness of God. It's like you're cursing God. And this is why in Genesis 9.6, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. It's, it's like you're trying to murder God when you murder another human being. And so God says the murderer has now made his life forfeit. This doctrine of man as the image of God is incredibly important for any discussion of wokeness. Number one, because human beings, regardless of ethnicity, all exhibit this image. We all share that. And number two, Understanding the image of God is the basis for understanding why human beings have rights. Now, sometimes we get skittish about talking about human rights because it 
it brings up in our mind those who uh, are insisting upon rights that are not rights at all, or they're insisting uh, upon uh, rights to God as if God owes them something. That certainly isn't true. When we talk about rights, we're talking about what do other people owe us as made in the image of God, and what do we owe them? It's because we as human beings possess dignity given us from God that we can insist upon our rights to not be mistreated by other human beings. And there are no such secure protections for you when you're nothing but an accidental chemical arrangement in the evolutionary worldview. The first four of the Ten Commandments teach us what God deserves. And the last six of the Ten Commandments teach us what the image of God deserves, what human beings deserve. They have a right to honor when they are in authority, honor your parents. They have a right to life, shall not murder, a right to an unbroken marriage contract, shall not commit adultery, a right to their personal property, shall not steal, a right to their reputation and to due process, shall not bear false witness. And again, right to their personal property, shall not covet. Understanding the image of God is crucial because as we will see, many in the woke movement want to violate the rights of image bearers. So the next doctrine, we're going to keep moving, is the Bible's teaching on ethnic unity. So ethnicity, I believe, is a much more biblical term than race. And the, the reason is there are not multiple races, but rather only one, the human race. And unfortunately, a uh, PowerPoint presentation was revealed only a few months ago, being used by one of our federal agencies to teach its employees that the sentence, there is only one race, the human race, is offensive to people of color. No offense to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, but I think I'm going to side with Acts 17.26, where it says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. There is only one race. And this human race has commonality in our creation. We are all made in the image of God. We have commonality in our fallenness. We are all descended from Adam, the head of the human race, and we all experience the effect of that sin of Adam. We also have a commonality in our need for redemption in Jesus Christ. In other words, we are all in the same boat when it comes to the way we were made, what our fundamental need is, that is salvation, and the way that need is met, Jesus. So if we all have this commonality, where did all this diversity come from? Look at all the differences among us. God made the human race with this uh, potential for all these differences from the very beginning. But it took a particular historical event to accentuate these differences. The Tower of Babel. Read in Genesis 11, 1-9, how God saw that the human race was using its unity in order to commit rebellion against him. God had told them, go across the entire earth, fill it. And they said, no, we're going to stay here. We're going to stay together, and we are going to rebel against you. So he said, behold, they are, using, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is the, only the beginning of what they will do. So he breaks up their unity and uses diverse languages to intentionally divide them from one another. God scatters them across the earth, as Acts 17.26 says, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So the linguistic differences mean they can't work together on a daily basis, so they separate. The linguistic differences lead to geographical differences. And then those geographical differences, because they're not interacting anymore on a daily basis, lead to cultural differences. And over time, 
Those cultural differences even lead to uh, differences in appearance, physical differences. We look different. We see that even in individual families. You go, oh, you, you look like uh, you got a Sisler chin or something. You know, we, we see that there are differences between us based on uh, where you're from and what circles you've been in, what country you lived in. These all originate from Babel. They were all exacerbated at Babel, so to speak. So those differences originate from God's work of creation in Eden and also his work of judgment at Babel. And unsurprisingly, what does fallen man do? We respond to those differences to sin against one another again and use them to also rebel against God. We do that through racism and ethnocentrism, if you want to use that term as well, thinking one ethnicity is better than another. And let me remind you that these differences are not inherently bad. Many of those differences are still going to persist in eternity in heaven. Revelation 5, 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals. You were slaughtered and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. We saw God start this redemptive process at Pentecost, reversing the curse of Babel temporarily when his apostles were able to preach the gospel in such a way that people from any nation could hear them. And we, in at least one sense, continue that work when we support Bible translation today in missions. A few applications quickly from this biblical doctrine of ethnic unity. Number one, unity is not good in and of itself. The woke in in churches often promote their views in the name of racial unity. But the, the builders of Babel had unity in their rebellion. They were united to do a bad thing. They were united in sin together. Number two, a corollary to this is that diversity is not good in and of itself. And having people from different races or ethnicities in an institution like a business school or church is of no value if the institution is being used for sinful purposes. Neither unity or diversity means are inherently, uh, mean inherently what you're doing is a good thing. Number three, another application from the Bible's teaching on ethnicity. Don't tolerate anybody speaking about a characteristic that God created, like skin color, disparagingly. I've heard Christians point out someone's blackness as shorthand for, for somebody whose morality we should be suspicious of. And you've probably heard today Christians use whiteness, or people use whiteness as shorthand for sin or, or, or something I don't like. Both of these are disgusting practices, and anyone committing either of these should be immediately subject to, uh, to church discipline. You'll probably hear the woke use terms like whiteness, and they'll claim up and down it doesn't mean anything racist, but don't put up with it. What they're doing is they're marrying together the connotation of white skin, which God made, and the connotation of evil, which God hates. And they're hiding it together under one sophisticated sounding word in order to commit public partiality and get away with it. And that leads us to our third doctrine, partiality. This is one we desperately need to know to address critical race theory. It's one of those doctrines the church has been so weak in understanding. The key text for this is James 2, verses 1 to 4. James 2, 1 to 4. He says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
So what is partiality that James condemns here? Well, we could also call it favoritism. We could call it discrimination. Uh, I believe the King James Version uh, called it uh, respect of persons. Here's my quick and simple definition of partiality, as scripture seems to describe it. Partiality is basing a decision about others on irrelevant personal characteristics. Basing a decision about others on irrelevant personal characteristics. In verse 4, James says that those committing partiality have become judges with evil thoughts. The job of a judge is to make decisions, to do it impartially and without favoritism, without bias, even when the partialistic decision is about seating arrangements. James says, don't do that. Here's a church member who apparently assumes correctly, based on appearance, that somebody's rich and the other guy is poor, there's limited seating, And he politely gives the rich man the seat of honor, sit here in a good place, and he brusquely directs the poor man over to the wall, stand there, or at his feet, sit here. This person was basing a decision about others, where they should sit, based on irrelevant personal characteristics. So why have I, in my definition, just just simply said, hey, just don't look at personal characteristics? Well, it's because, number one, the Bible recognizes all those personal characteristics are real. They're real characteristics. It doesn't pretend that they don't exist. Uh, we, we, scripture acknowledges, like, a, like we read, scripture, la, uh, sorry, tribes, languages, nations, and even skin color. Jeremiah 13.23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Everybody knew that they looked differently. And there's a, another passage in Numbers I could read where uh, Miriam makes fun of Moses' wife, likely for her skin color. These differences make no difference in how God provides salvation, but they are still real differences. And in some decision-making, you have to take these personal characteristics into account because they're highly relevant to the decisions that are being made. For instance, let's say there's no chairs left in here, there's no spots, and and we see that uh, an old man comes in with a walker and then an able-bodied man comes in. Uh, Would James have a say, hey, sorry, we don't discriminate here. Grandpa, you're going to have to sit on the floor. No, of course not. It's because uh, the able because the the, the able-bodied uh, man that characteristic of being able-bodied and of someone being disabled th- those characteristics are highly relevant to the decision that's being made. Another example, you know, when my daughter is one day uh, looking for a husband, I do not want her to be indiscriminate. I want her to discriminate in a good way uh, between the boys and the men, and definitely between the women and the men. And finding a spouse is one of those decisions where you better take into account a lot of personal characteristics. That's your prerogative. A biblical example of the many people that Jesus had following him, he picked 12 specially to give attention to, and then even then, Peter, James, and John, three more to give special attention to. Jesus certainly wasn't wrong to take personal characteristics into account that we don't know what those were. He singled out a few men for special attention, and that was his prerogative as a teacher. So partiality is basing a decision about others on irrelevant personal characteristic. Irrelevant. You know, we often think about the attributes of God, about how he is mighty, all-powerful, holy, merciful. But for how often the Bible talks about God being impartial, we have really neglected this attribute of God. 1 Peter 1.17 calls God the Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Likewise, Romans 2.6 says God will render to each one according to his works, and later in the passage, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This means that nobody can rely on their ethnicity to get them a lighter sentence when they've broken God's law. 
Ephesians 6, 9 says there's no partiality with him. 2 Chronicles 19, 7, there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. And Deuteronomy 10, 17, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. So quickly, applications of this doctrine of partiality. Number one, a more biblical term for racism is ethnic partiality. James was specifically talking about economic partiality, uh, prejudice against someone because they're poor. But we can extend this to ethnicity too, uh, ethnic partiality. Number two, we do need to be alert to all forms of partiality today. Partiality is a sin. And there are many who have fallen into the social justice movement who started being tempted to head down that path because they saw uh, racist things happening around them and it didn't seem like the church they were attending or Christians around them cared about it. This, but partiality is a real sin. I can't tell you how many times I've seen, here, here's other examples of partiality, I can't tell you how many times I've seen um, unqualified men appointed as elders simply because they got money and they run a successful business. That's economic partiality. Or pastors who completely disregard the, the opinions of the elderly in their congregation because, well, we're trying to reach a younger demographic and all of that. That's uh, age-based partiality. In the wider world, if we had time, of course, we could talk about the horrid uh, historical examples of ethnic partiality against Native Americans, the slavery of African Americans, uh, Japanese Americans being put in internment camps in World War II to the Jim Crow laws and lynching and redlining, of course. The church, too, has often been silent on these to a degree. Unfortunately, the social justice movement is quickly becoming the loudest voice in favor of open partiality today. A case against Harvard University is currently making its way to the Supreme Court because allegedly Harvard was discriminating against Asian students who tend to perform uh, more highly academically than any other ethnic group, and they were trying to achieve certain racial percentages at their school. It's a widespread practice, and they've uh, gotten away with it for some time. Ibram X. Kendi, probably the most famous popularizer of CRT today, once wrote, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. In other words, he's claiming that the solution to old partiality is new partiality because uh, white people committed partiality in the past. He thinks they need to suffer under partiality today. And this is why we now have some policies, some failed, some enforced, coming from the federal government and some state governments that uh, give you prioritized access to COVID treatments if you're the right skin color, special, uh, special access to farming loans if you're the right color. I believe the Supreme Court uh, struck that one down. And special access to welfare if you're the right color. This is all stems from critical race theory, saying let's commit that sin today against people who are descended from people who committed that sin yesterday. This kind of thinking is spreading into the church, too. A popular Southern Baptist pastor, many of you uh, probably have heard his name, Matt Chandler, said in recent years that if he was looking at men to hire based on their qualifications on a scale of from 1 to 10, he would hire an African-American 7 over an Anglo 8. By Anglo, he means a white man. In other words, he's saying he would de deprive the church of the most qualified leader and hire a less qualified man if he was the right color. Now, I understand why there might be some meaningful symbolism when, for instance, a church that was historically racist against black Americans selects its first black elder. There have been some beautiful stories of that kind of uh, uh, the power of the gospel bringing sorrow for sin and reconciliation. It's beautiful when it happens. But rejoicing when that moment comes about in a biblical manner is completely different than making it happen in an unbiblical manner.
So if I hear a pastor using terms like Anglo 8 and Black 7, I I don't care who you are, you're a racist zero. (laughs) That goes for both anti-white and anti-non-white partiality. So the next doctrine, earthly justice. We can define justice, generally speaking, as fairness, as people being given what they deserve. In the most general sense, people being given what they deserve. And God has directly established three governments on the earth. Uh, Civil government, church government, and family government. What this means is that these governments have the responsibility to discipline or punish those under its authority who have committed wrongdoing. Civil government and authority over the state must punish those who commit crimes among their citizenry. Church government, that is pastors and elders, must discipline those who unrepentantly commit sin in the church. And family government, that is parents, must discipline the misbehavior of children in their home. That's, justice is one of their responsibilities, not, does not summarize all of their responsibilities, but it is one. Each of these authorities have a responsibility to rule their own domain, so to speak, justly. In fact, their just decision-making is one way that God, in the present, here and now, exercises his own justice on the earth. Romans 13.1 says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 13.4 says, The government ruler is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So how do earthly governments decide when someone has done something wrong? And God has a lot to say about that. Because if you get it wrong and you punish an innocent person, you yourself are now committing injustice and have become an oppressor. It's a very serious thing. It's why uh, in, in, uh, our, in the Western tradition of, of law, there's, a, there's an old saying that basically goes, hey, we would much rather err on letting someone guilty go free than become guilty ourselves by punishing an innocent man. Not that we should ever intentionally let guilty go free, but if you're going to err one side or the other. when See, it all starts with an accusation. That's how God says it, this process of justice starts. It starts with an accusation, also known as a charge or an allegation. When God was setting up the courts of Israel, he said this in Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not suffice uh, against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So in other words, before the law, people must be considered innocent until proven guilty, not vice versa. Lest you think that this requirement for sufficient evidence to prove an accusation is only an Old Testament standard, Matthew 18, 15 to 16, which is the uh, classic passage on church discipline, says if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Uh, If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. That's, That's great. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Likewise, 1 Timothy 5, 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And 2 Corinthians 13, 1 says every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Are you seeing the pattern here? There needs to be a standard for evidence. And I do not think uh, scripture requires literally two or three people who have witnessed a sin, but something equivalent to that. 
So making sure that no accused person gets punished without first proving their guilt through the careful weighing of evidence and then making that decision without partiality is the process that every person being made in the image of God deserves. It is the process they are due. That's why we call it due process. And if you remember in Acts 22, 25 to 9, Paul was about to be whipped after a mob accused him of riling everybody up and he was about to be punished and he said hold on I'm a citizen I have rights and those soldiers got scared they're like oh we almost punished a guy before he had a court trial God takes this process so seriously that bearing false witness is one of his 10 commandments Deuteronomy 19:18 says that if a false witness is caught then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. In other words, if you accuse somebody of murder for which the crime was the death penalty, then you would receive the death penalty if it came out you were actually knowingly lying. And here's where partiality comes in again. Deuteronomy 16 commands that judges shall judge with the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. This is the classic biblical example of partiality. The wicked judge, a judge, has been given one decision to make. Did the accused individual break the law or not? A judge is to look at the law and then is to look at the facts of the case and decide are they guilty or are they not guilty? Based, they better, and partiality is when they make that decision based on any characteristic besides that of their guilt. In Deuteronomy 1.17, God said, You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. Exodus 23.2 says, We are not to be partial to the poor man in his lawsuit. When God is warning judges about this, and this goes for judges today as well, he says, beware of being tempted to partiality, whether it's uh, in Deuteronomy 16 saying, you shall not show partiality, you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. So notice it's saying, no partiality, no favoritism in any direction. Uh, you shall do no just injustice in court, Leviticus 19.15 says. You shall not be partial to the poor or to the great, or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So you do not give a lesser punishment to a poor and uninfluential criminal because you feel a misplaced sympathy. And you do not give a lesser punishment to a rich and influential criminal out of, because you feel greed or you feel fear. So a judge needs to be blind to those irrelevant personal characteristics that have nothing to do with his decision. This is why even today, outside of courthouses in our land, you'll often find a statue of a blindfolded woman holding a set of scales in one hand and a sword in the other. We, we call her Lady Justice, justice personified. She's got the scales to weigh evidence, the sword to execute punishment, and a blindfold to ensure impartiality. She needs to ignore whether the accuser or the accused is rich, poor, male, female, young, old, disabled, able-bodied. That blindfold is impartiality, and it is a contribution to modern civilization that came from the biblical worldview. And yet today there, is, there are many out there who would like nothing more than to rip that blindfold off of Lady Justice's face so she might intentionally judge with partiality. So here's some applications from that doctrine of justice. Justice is a biblical word. It's a biblical concept, and God loves it. Do not let the ungodly taint it in your mind. Everyone should be given equality before the law, given a fair hearing. 
That is, they get the same due process when they are accused. This is equitable and fair. Remember, it was our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was put to death with false witnesses in a partial trial. Number two, guilt must be proved. I don't care if we are in a literal courthouse, a church court, so to speak, or in the court of public opinion. Every allegation must be proved with evidence. And this is an aspect of biblical justice that the woke just absolutely hate because accusations are a key part of their grievance-based way of thinking. The, uh, in fact, James Lindsay, one of the leading anti-CRT writers, has said that one uh, admittedly unacademic definition you could use to describe CRT is that uh, you could just describe it as calling everything racist that you want to control until it is under your control. Accusations are a key part of this ideology. One woke professor once said, quote, to ask for evidence of racism is racism, with a capital R. In other words, when you ask for evidence of an accusation, well, that's racist in and of itself. Many woke activists online will demand that you prove you're against racism, asking, what have you done to fight racism recently? And the truth is, fighting actual racism, hey, it's a good thing, among a thousand other good things to do. But once someone demands proof that you aren't guilty of racism, you're suddenly scrambling for how to respond because you've been, you, you realize, oh, I'm assumed to be guilty for some reason. Now I have to prove my innocence. Just ignore that. That is not how justice works. Social justice activists also love to say it's time to, pardon my language, this is the phrase they use, shut up and listen to people of color. That's what they say. And activists in the church will sometimes sanitize that and just say, listen to people of color. By saying listen to, co- to people of color, some do just mean, hey, let's give them a fair hearing. I'm sure there are pe- some people who use that phrase that way. Unfortunately, in my experience, most of the time, the way that phrase is used, it means believe them and do what they want you to do. It means something closer to obey rather than just hear them out. And in the Me Too movement, which is more related to wokeness than many realize, they use a similar phrase, believe all women who make accusations of sexual violence. And this is both a violation of due process and it is partiality. Assuming an accuser is telling the truth simply because of their sex. We actually have a biblical example of Potiphar's wife accusing, uh, falsely accusing Joseph. Uh, Believe it or not, both women and people of color, because of our shared fallenness, are capable of making false accusations, of lying. And anyone they accuse, regardless of sex or color, is still made in the image of God, and they deserve due process. Even when the accusation has to do with a horrible, hard-to-prove sin, sins like sexual abuse and racism. Daniel and I have uh, been discussing of late how we're often seeing marriages that are being ruined because uh, this kind of thinking has seeped into much of the counseling world, much of psychology, uh, provided that a a, a, a so-called victim has the right characteristics that the counselor finds sympathetic. The counselor just assumes everything they're telling what their spouse is doing to them or other people are doing to them, they just assume it's absolutely right and here's what you need to do about it. Here's how you need to treat that person. I'm seeing church leadership teams assume to be racist simply because they're all white. Now, hey, they could be racist, but their, uh, their shared skin color is not evidence of that. Robin D'Angelo, one of the leading woke authors, had said the question is not did racism take place, but rather, in which way did racism manifest in this specific context? So she's assuming wrongdoing has happened. We just need to figure out how. 
This is a core tenet of CRT. It believes racism never gets better. It just hides better. Unfortunately, even in the SBC, we, we see this, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, a pastor just in recent months claimed online that there is a, there's still a whites-only church in the Southern Baptist Convention somewhere in Alaska. And when people everywhere begged him, tell us, we're going to deal with this if that's true. He would not give any specifics. He would not provide any evidence of his claim. Another application, number three, of uh, the biblical doctrine of earthly justice. Judges have to judge impartially. There are open calls right now for judges to base their decision not on guilt, but on the background of, of the accused, on their poverty. If a criminal uh, is black or brown or grew up an orphan or abused, they are now being expected to give lighter sentences. That's partiality. Corporate sin. This is the, uh, another doctrine we need to talk about. Number five. Corporate sin, the sins of groups. I've seen Christians speaking against CRT often make certain claims like, how dare you say that white people are racist? You shouldn't critique whole groups of people like that. The problem with this is that God himself, in his word, and his prophets and apostles, do make moral judgments about entire people groups. He does. He does talk about corporate sin, sin committed by groups. In Titus 1, 12 to 13, Paul writes to Timothy, a pastor on the island of Crete, and says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So Paul was unafraid to say that a group of people was known for being sinful, committing uh, lies and being gluttonous. In other letters, Paul warns particular groups of people, uh, men, women, masters, slaves, children, parents, about particular sins, implying that you're probably uniquely going to struggle with this temptation more than other groups, if you're in this group or that group. Matthew 23, Jesus makes sweeping statements about the Pharisees, and God makes statements about the sin of entire cities and nations in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah, the Canaanites, Israel. But here's the point. In all these corporate judgments, these moral assessments about groups of people, God always allows for the possibility of some to be exempt either through innocence because they haven't participated in the sin of the group or through repentance because they've participated in the sin of the group, but they've been forgiven of that. A perfect example of this is Genesis 18 where God informs Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham, probably wondering about his nephew Lot, says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Far be it for you to do such a thing so that the righteous fare is the wicked. Far be that from you, shout that not the judge of the earth do what is just. And the Lord, of course, says, I'm gonna, I'll spare Sodom. I will let all those wicked people in Sodom, the majority of the city, go unpunished if I find 50 righteous. And Abraham pushes him further. What about 40? He says, yeah, 40. 30, 20, 10. And Abraham stops pushing at 10. And God agrees, okay, if I find 10 righteous, I won't destroy the city. And you know what? God went on to prove that if there's even one righteous man, I'll save him and his family before I destroy that city. New Testament tells us Lot was a righteous man. And we see in Elijah's day, even, God says, I'm going to destroy every single person. And then in 1 Kings 19, 18, yet I will leave 7,000, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. And even though Jesus condemned, had, hor- had, had the strongest of words for the Pharisees, we see Nicodemus come to him at night and apparently uh, believed in Jesus, stood up uh, for Jesus in the midst of the Pharisees. And likewise, Paul was a Pharisee who, uh, who by repentance, was no longer guilty. 
See, critical race theory, critical theory and related beliefs thrives on making negative moral assessments, that is, accusations of sinfulness about groups of people. It believes everyone in society is either oppressed or an oppressor. And you can identify to what degree you're one or the other based on these personal characteristics in their view. In critical race theory, you're an oppressor if you're white. In liberation theology, which is related to it, it's if you're rich. In feminism, it's if you're a man. In queer theory or gender studies, it's if you are heterosexual and or cisgender. That is, you identify with the sex that you were assigned at birth. In post-colonial theory, if you are descended from European settlers. In disability studies, if you're able-bodied. In fat studies, if you are thin. Yes, these are all real academic fields. In, in, in uh, critical animal studies, if you're human. I'm not joking. If you're these things, you're an oppressor. And so this is all just another way of saying that if you're not those things, if you're not white, not male, not rich, etc., they assume you're oppressed. This is where the phrase goes, oh, this was made by rich, white, old white men. That's, that's where this comes from. So if you have more than one of these characteristics associated with oppression in their mind, and those characteristics of you, yours are layered on top of one another... For instance, if you're in their minds, if you're a gay black woman, you experience oppression at the intersection of those three characteristics. That's what they call intersectionality. They're trying to tie all these movements together so that they can work together. And that's why it feels like all these social movements, CRT, LGB, trans rights, animal rights, are all hitting us at once. They are. They're working together. They come from the same field of thought. So the application here, number one, critical theory wants to divide uh, all of humanity into two groups, the oppressor and the oppressed. And let's be clear, oppression does exist and it is wicked. Oppression is when you use your authority or your power over others to hurt them and God hates it. That word is in the Bible. But if we want to divide humanity into two groups in a kind of social binary, in God's mind, oppressor and oppressed is not the most important uh, distinction No, the main biblical distinction to divide all humanity into is believer and unbeliever. God sees the oppression on the earth and he despises it, but faith is the determining factor between the righteous and the unrighteous, not victim and victimizer. There will be victims of oppression in heaven and in hell, and there will be victimizers, oppressors in heaven and in hell. Your social status or victim status is nowhere near as important as your spiritual status. Second application. Claiming that a particular sin has been committed by a group of people that share a particular characteristic is not wrong. We should uh, uh, try to be accurate in those claims, but it's not wrong to make such claims. And there probably was a time in history when it would have been accurate and appropriate to say white Americans are racist as a group, uh, similar to the way Paul judged Cretan culture. Why? Because that sin had become so widespread and so prevalent that that sin began to characterize that people group. The same way that we might refer to a particular tribe as cannibalistic, even though maybe not every individual in that tribe participated in that sinful culture. But whether that assessment about white people is still accurate today or not, the moment that the person making the assessment refuses to exempt anyone from that group, they have set themselves against God who vindicates the innocent and who justifies the repentant. This is the very heart of the gospel. Ephesians 
chapter 3, verses 2 to 4 say that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's all human beings. That's a group that God is saying are all under wrath. That's accusing all humanity of sin. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There is always a remnant of the innocent and the, or the redeemed. So pay attention. If you ever hear somebody in your church say, white people are racist, or make any other moral assessment about a group, if they're implying that there's no individuals capable of being exempt of that corporate sin, if they say something like all white people or every white person, you can simply say, hey, we might disagree about whether that's an accurate assessment. We might disagree uh, how bad that sin is in our society now or today. But if you mean that every single individual in that group is guilty of that sin or cannot get rid of their guilt of that sin, then that is slander, that is partiality, and that is worthy of church discipline. So hear me again. We can sit in pews next to one another, and we can disagree about whether racism doesn't exist anymore or it's never gotten any better than it once was. And we can still worship the God who saved us both through the gospel. But it is anti-gospel to believe an individual cannot be innocent or repentant of sin simply because they're part of a sinful group. In closing, our final doctrine, we're going to talk about historical sin, or we might call this the doctrine of final justice. What do we do with sin that has happened in the past when it wasn't dealt with at the time, when oppressors and wrongdoers and victimizers escaped justice during their lifetime and now deceased are out of reach of earthly courts? Even our courts today understand that they can't accomplish total justice. Larry Nasser, you may have heard of, the Olympics uh, gymnastics doctor who abused dozens of victims, was sentenced to 275 years in prison. Why? Nobody expects him to live that, that full sentence out. It's because even the American justice system re- recognizes that full justice cannot be achieved in earthly courts. Let me first tell you what we don't do to deal with historical sin. We do not punish people for the sin of their ancestors or expect them to repent for it or make amends for it. The only times in scripture that we see anybody confessing their ancestors' sin is when people like Israel are confessing a sin that their fathers and they themselves both committed. We see this in Israel, uh, for instance, Leviticus 26, 40 to 42. They'll say, our fathers have committed this sin and even us until this day. have. We have a long tradition of this and we repent of it. But God forbids punishing anyone for the sin of their forebearers. As we read this morning in Ezekiel 18, verses 2 to 3 say, What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, don't use this proverb anymore, God says. He goes on to describe a righteous man who has an unrighteous son, who has a righteous son. And he says, The righteous grandfather and grandson will live, but the unrighteous father, he will be punished for his sin. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father for the iniquity of the son. So even if it is true that you have benefited materially uh, from the sin of your ancestors, we do not punish one another for the sins of another. Even if we find out that your grandfather had uh, cheated my grandfather out of something and that sin had reverberating uh, economic effects through the generations, I have no right to demand that you be punished for his sins. I have no right to demand that your possessions, when you have done nothing wrong, should be confiscated to make me feel better. End of story. 
The application of this doctrine should obviously be be clear to claims of reparations for supposed descendants of slave owners to descendants of slaves today. And just quickly, consider the historical impossibility of that. What do do people do who are biracial? Is one side going to pay their other side? Why would we stop at the American 1800s? Should Italians pay the UK for Rome's conquering of Britannia? Should, uh, should, uh, African Americans, uh, or should, should native Africans today pay African Americans for kidnapping some of their ancestors and selling them to the British? Should I go grab a Catholic and make him pay because uh, my Amish ancestors were persecuted by them? You know, reading those martyr stories about my ancestral people and how they were mistreated, it, it breaks my heart. They were my people. They were the people through whom God gave me the gospel. But trying to fix that sin now becomes nonsensical. It is human beings trying to do what only God can do. So if if getting that justice is impossible now, what do we do? And this is actually a question that the martyrs in heaven are asking right now. Now, their, their oppressors are still alive and they're dead because they've been martyred. But Revelation 6 says, as we read, they're crying out saying, how long until you avenge? Our blood. How long until you give us justice for what they did to us? And did God say, hey, knock it off. That's not, that's not a good desire to have. Stop wanting revenge. No, that's not what he says. Revenge is when you want to settle the score. You want to do God's job. Justice is the business of God and the business of those that he has appointed on the earth to do it, to avenge the evildoer. That longing for justice is a God-given desire for someone else's punishment that's different than revenge. It's wanting God to give sin what it deserves as he has promised to do. We've forgotten that God being a just God is good news in and of itself for people who have been hurt and victimized. It tells them there is someone who agrees that what was done to you was awful. And if there is anyone here right now who has been hurt, who has been wronged, and know that they have not been given, you have not been given your just reward. That person has not received justice yet, what they're due. Let me tell you, your God does not dismiss your emotions. He says, give them to me so you can be at peace. The way he told the martyrs in heaven, here, have, these, have this clothing and be, be at rest a little while longer. Wait for me. God hates the sin that happened to you more than you ever could. He is heartbroken by it more than you have ever been. Every sin that has ever been committed against you or any of your family or your ancestors will receive its due punishment, either on the back of Christ if the wrongdoer was a believer or on the back of the unbeliever himself. The burden of seeing justice done to long-dead oppressors is not up to us. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, Romans 12, 19. And in Revelation 16, when the martyrs finally get to witness that punishment of those who persecuted them, they break out into songs singing, Yes, Lord God, almighty, true, and just are your judgments. Do we praise God for his justice? Do we praise him that he is a good judge? That the wrongdoing that we see on the earth will meet its just end? God's punishment of wrongdoers is compassion upon the victims of wrongdoers. God's wrath upon sinners is an act of love toward his church, which has been sinned against. See, these godless ideologies, when they notice that a wrongdoer who got away with it, who died before the courts could get to him, 
What they do, because they do not believe in our God, they have rebelled against him, they turn to their high, realize that they turned away from their only hope for final, total justice. This is because they know that if God exists, they themselves, as evildoers, will be judged. No, when we see that God has sovereignly turned a page of history and an evildoer passes away before the courts could get to him. We lament that the earthly governments have failed, but we wait in eager expectation for Jesus' return, the one who now rules over every nation, who will bring perfect justice, and we must simultaneously pray, Lord, come to judge evildoers who oppress your people, and Lord, please soften the hearts of evildoers to your gospel so they become your people. We are all both victims and victimizers when it comes to sin. We all are oppressors. We all have sinned against God's holy law. We all deserve his holy and righteous justice, regardless of ethnicity, economic background, nationality, height, weight, skin color. Recognize your fallenness if you are listening today. Recognize your guilt. Recognize that you need forgiveness only found in Jesus Christ, and nothing will save you but his death in which he sacrificed for sin. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Be free from it and become a part of the multi-ethnic, multilingual, colorful family of God. Thank you.